ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. In the Superior Court of Cobb County, State of Georgia, State of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris, defendant, we the jury find as follows, count one, malice murder. As count one, we define, find the defendant guilty this 14th day of November. I think this is one of those occasions where obviously the actions speak louder than words in this case. And anybody who could do this, and the evidence showed that he did this intentionally, he has malice in his heart, absolutely. He told us over and over that God had been faithful. And we, uh, we prayed. It was, it was quite intense in those moments. Four grown men in prayer and tears. In our last episode of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, we signed off on the Justin Ross Harris case. So of course we're back, one more time, to sign off again on the Justin Ross Harris case. When last we spoke, we were days away from the sentencing of Harris. He had been found guilty of all eight counts against him in the murder of his son, Cooper. But we heard from many of you, maybe thousands, probably more like tens of you, who said you wanted one more episode after the sentencing. So, now that the sentence has been pronounced, here's a postscript. All rise. Superior Court of Clark County is now in session on the Mary Staley Clark presiding. Please be seated and turn off the cell phones off. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, we are here to conduct the sentencing in the case of the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris. Harris had been herded back into the courtroom in Marietta in manacles, waist chains, and leg irons. Now bereft of the trial coat and tie, or that hideous sweater vest that just didn't work for him in Brunswick, he was back in prison orange. Judge Mary Staley Clark had some serious business to transact with Harris. But first, even with the deflated lump of a defendant standing before her, waiting to hear what he must have known was going to be very bad news, Staley Clark wanted to thank the Academy. First, I want to say that, um, and I want to thank the Brunswick Judicial Circuit for their help and hospitality during the trial of the case of the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris. And I particularly want to thank the judges of the Brunswick She Judicial thanked all Circuit the judges in Brunswick, 
She thanked the Glen County Sheriff and his deputies and the bailiffs assigned to the trial. She thanked Cobb County Sheriff Neil Warren for providing, quote, our security detail. Who knew? Then she thanked the court administrator and his team, the jurors, the two legal teams, etc., and so on. All this seemed a little excessive, except, of course, for her accolades for David Tyler. Tyler was the county engineer who made sure the audio and video worked, and he's in large part responsible for the courtroom audio you've heard on this podcast. So thanks, David. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a professional pleasure to work with you under trying circumstances exacerbated by two hurricanes. Anyway, she's doing all this as the orange figure of Harris and his defense team are waiting for you-know-what. And I thought, can't you do this afterward? After you send the defendant to his reward and remand him to the company of all the other orange people? Finally, she got to the point. The only real question for Staley Clark, if it was a question at all, was whether Harris would be sentenced to life in prison without parole or life with the possibility of parole. I think it really wasn't a question. I believe we're at a point where we can begin to take evidence in aggravation and mitigation. Does the state have anything to say before we do that? We have no further evidence than what was put out of trial judge. And for the defense? No evidence. All right. Then we have argument. Uh, we can proceed with argument. I'm ready to hear what you all have to say. For the defense. We have no argument. You need to be standing up when you speak to me. Lawyers are always supposed to do that when they address the court. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a lawyer fail to rise and how many times that gets a rise out of the judge. Now, lawyers don't always stand when they provide a short answer, but Staley Clark wasn't going to grant such an exception here. Now standing, Kilgore repeated his answer. Thank you. This prompted lead prosecutor Chuck Boring to question whether the defense team was playing games and setting up a possible avenue for an appeal because they weren't advocating for the lowest possible sentence for their client. At Boring's urging, Staley Clark asked Kilgore to explain himself. Mr. Kilgore. I don't have to do that. Choose not to. So the judge then took it upon herself to make Harris address this directly, on the record. Mr. Harris. You have a right at this time to offer evidence in mitigation. You can call witnesses. They can be put up for uh, the purposes of testimony. Um, The nature of mitigating evidence is mitigating or extenuating facts or circumstances or those that do not constitute a justification or excuse for the offense, but that in fairness and mercy may be considered as extenuating or reducing the degree of moral culpability or blame. So it's your choice, after consulting with your lawyers, to present such evidence, she said. So I want to make sure that you heard what I just said to you. Did you hear what I said? Yes, ma'am. Have you consulted with your attorneys about this? Yes, ma'am. All right. Uh, If you have any disagreement with the way it's being conducted, now is the time to speak. All right. Staley Clark then asked Boring for his opinion on Harris's final sentence. What Boring said came as no surprise. There is absolutely no mitigation in this case. There is no justification. Uh, This is basically the most aggravated type of killing of another individual, specifically a young child. Uh, And I think that based upon the evidence that came out in the acts of this defendant, that there's only one sentence that reflects the, the evil nature of what he did. 
So, uh, Your Honor, we're going to ask for a sentence the maximum allowed by law. Uh, we would ask for, on count one, the defendants to be sentenced to a, a term of life, uh, that that be served without parole. Boring also asked for the maximum amount of prison time on the remaining counts. That would mean a sentence of life without parole with an additional 32 years in prison tacked on. I know why anyone would need additional time behind bars after exiting prison in a body bag is beyond me too. Before imposing sentence, Staley Clark said the jury that found Harris guilty of all eight counts had been both diligent and conscientious. They fairly um, deliberated and discharged their duties uh, and found the defendant guilty of what factually was a horrendous, horrific experience for this 22-month-old child who had been placed in the trust of his father in violation and dereliction of um, duty to that child, if not love of that child, callously walked away and left that child in a hot car in June in Georgia in the summer to swelter and die. The state's recommendation is the very least that anyone could deem just under the circumstances of this case, and I will follow the recommendation. Our frequent legal commentator, Marietta criminal defense lawyer Ashley Merchant, was in court for the sentencing. She thought the sentencing hearing was not exactly a spontaneous affair. And I think that the sentence was predisposed, you know, I think the judge had in her head what she was going to do, and I don't think that any amount of evidence or mitigation would have changed that. Um, So they could have done a whole dog and pony show if they wanted to and put up a ton of witnesses, but it's already out there. You know, everything that, that they could have argued has already been said and already been heard. She did indeed give Harris the extra 32 years after he's dead. That was for one child cruelty charge, 20 years plus three additional charges involving sexting with an underage girl, a total of 12 years. Staley Clark was respectful toward the defendant throughout the case, but now, having piled up so much prison time that Harris would have to be reincarnated to serve it all, the judge saw one last opening and took it. My final observation is this, Mr. Harris. I went back and reviewed and thought about your statement to the police and your statement to your wife when you were taken into custody. And it stood out to me that in both of those, you took the occasion to express your wish that you would be an advocate so that people would never do this again to their children. And I would say, perhaps not in the way that you intended, but you in fact have accomplished that goal. It was raining buckets that day, a welcome sight in drought-stricken Georgia. So the post-game press conference, usually held outside on the courthouse grounds, was held in the same courtroom where Harris had just been sentenced. To kick it off, Cobb County District Attorney Vic Reynolds repeated what he'd said at the end of the trial a few weeks earlier. As I mentioned previously in November, uh, where our goal was singular in nature, and that was simply to do everything possible uh, in a courtroom to seek justice on behalf of Cooper Harris. Mission accomplished, the DA said. He was then asked whether the Harris prosecution would have meaning and impact beyond the trial itself. I'm not sure. uh, It's difficult for me to answer whether or not it sends a message. I hope it does. I will tell you that, you know, we we hope and pray in this office that every parent uh, will make sure that he or she is very careful about uh, the circumstances of a child in a car. 
we know um, and we learned, I learned uh, in the pendency of this case that on occasion accidents happen. Uh, they do. I do think in some ways it's accomplished the goal of making people very, very aware in this community uh, uh, throughout the metropolitan Atlanta area, probably in the state of Georgia and maybe even further on a national level of, of the fact that you have to be extremely careful and cautious when, when uh, placing your child in a car seat and making sure that you don't in any way forget that circumstance or forget that child is there. But again, uh, this case we believe, uh, and a jury I think spoke very strongly and convincingly that they believed it as well, that this was not an accident, this was an absolute intentional act. Then he answered a question that has been on the minds of a lot of people ever since the case began. Why didn't he seek the death penalty? I mean, Regardless of what you think of capital punishment, here's a case in which the state believed, and later proved, that this man deliberately killed a 22-month-old child in a most horrible way. Deliberately. How could you not seek the death penalty? Many people have asked. Here's what Reynolds said. In looking at a death penalty case, there's basically two factors that I look at. One is from a legal perspective, and by that I mean are there aggravating factors in a case. Uh, although it's not written, my general policy is I, I minimally want two or more aggravating factors in a case. This certainly had one, just the nature of, of the facts and what happened to young Cooper would have qualified in that regard. But as you heard her honor state a moment ago, this defendant had no prior history. Uh, there were no additional victims or anything of that nature. And so we didn't really find another aggravating factor. Second, in all candor, this was an unusual case. Uh, th this was a case where the factual pattern had, had not been um, sought, at least from what we could find in Georgia, uh, on a malice murder conviction before, although we felt very strongly about it. You still don't know what a jury will do. Now, you really only have to have one aggravating circumstance to justify the death penalty in Georgia. And the DA definitely had that. They could have argued that Cooper's murder, as the law puts it, involved torture and depravity of mind. But Reynolds was probably playing it smart when he said he likes to have two aggravating circumstances. And he said he didn't have two in the Harris case. Just this week, Reynolds came up with a murder case that he says has eight aggravating circumstances. A man charged with raping and killing his 14-year-old stepdaughter and then burning the house down to hide his crime. So Reynolds decided to go for the death penalty in that case, the first time he has done so since he was elected DA in 2012. In his victory lap, which he was careful not to treat like a victory lap, lead prosecutor Chuck Boring said the Harris case is likely to be with him for a long time. Yeah, I don't think anybody involved in this case will ever be able to put it behind them, so to speak. I think we're all going to keep it with us for one reason or another. Different things we may have learned about the case, about evidentiary issues that came up that we've never encountered before that we had to research. Um, it was just such... Uh, an overwhelming case as far as the investigation, things that we learned that we could have done differently maybe. I think in that respect, we're always going to keep that with us. But I think also, you know, everybody involved in this case is going to remember it because of that victim. And so we'll move on and we'll keep doing our jobs and we'll keep seeking justice for children and victims of crime. Uh, so in that regard, we're going to move on. But I don't think any of us will move on or forget this. We met the defense team out in the hallway. No angry denunciations. No recriminations. 
They were pretty much as quiet outside court that day as they had been during the hearing. Asked whether he wanted to make a statement to the press, lead defense attorney Maddox Kilgore said he would soon be filing a motion for a new trial. That, Kilgore said, will be our statement. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So before we walk away from the Harris case for the last time, if this really is the last time, let's take a minute for your favorite thing. It's time for another lesson lesson in in the law. The discerning listener has already been asking him or herself, wait, the charges against Harris seem both duplicative and even contradictory. How can that be? Let's hear from our resident legal expert, Atlanta lawyer Don Samuel. He's a highly regarded attorney who has written books on criminal case law. Here he is explaining why Harris was sentenced for one count of murder, even though he was convicted of three counts of murder. The theory basically is there's only been one homicide. There's only one corpus delecti, as we like to say. There's only one dead person. So you can't be convicted of two different murders. I mean, it wouldn't make sense to be sentenced for two different murders when there was only one murder. It, it was committed in one of a variety of different ways, felony murder, malice murder, different types of felony murder, but there was still only one murder. So you can't be sentenced for one murder more than one time. So we call that a merger, where the you know eventually the court at the time of sentencing says, well, there was only one homicide, so I'm only going to sentence him one time for a homicide. So the, the counts all merge. That's pretty straightforward, right? This next point we're going to cover? Not so much. I'm trying not to be too repetitive here, but remember, the jury found Harris guilty of malice murder, which means he intentionally killed his son. And it also found him guilty of two counts of felony murder. A felony murder occurs when someone dies while someone else is committing a felony. For example, someone gets run over by the getaway car during an armed robbery. The robbers didn't mean to kill the pedestrian, but the death occurred during the commission of their felony. That's felony murder. In the first felony murder count against Harris, the underlying felony was cruelty to children in the first degree. The jury found that Harris intentionally left Cooper in a hot car to suffer severe pain. That's essentially the same thing as the malice murder charge. But the other felony murder count was cruelty to children in the second degree the jury found that Harris, by his own negligence, left Cooper in his car to die. In his closing argument, Prosecutor Boring told the jury it could find Harris guilty of all three counts. And of course, the jury did. But that doesn't really make any sense, does it? Harris was convicted of intentionally killing his son and also of accidentally killing his son. Here's Don Samuel again. Legally, the inconsistent verdicts occur in a variety of ways. There's, you know, sometimes you have a jury that acquits a defendant of one count and convicts on another count, 
and they're just irreconcilable. An example of that would be a defendant who's charged in count one with armed robbery and charged in count two with possession of a gun during the commission of a crime and is convicted of the armed robbery but acquitted of possession of a gun. Well, that, that really makes no sense. A second example would be a defendant, like in this case, who's convicted of two different counts which have irreconcilable states of mind, such as negligence and intention. And then a third example might be where you have two defendants, um, for example, who are charged with conspiring to commit a crime. And, of course, it takes two people to conspire. One's acquitted and one's convicted. Well, that doesn't make much sense either. Of course, you wouldn't think the courts of Georgia would allow something as nonsensical as that, but you'd be wrong. And yet in all these situations, the Georgia courts, um, you know, eventually have held, we are simply not going to try to plumb the depths of the jury's deliberation process and uh, inconsistent verdicts stand. So there's no, there's no relief really when, as a logical matter, the, the verdicts seem to be inconsistent. Even if the prosecutor can get away with it, why would he? From a practical standpoint, you know, I'm not sure why a prosecutor would want to argue to a jury inconsistent verdicts just because it, it, it seems to me that it doesn't make sense to a jury and a jury that is paying attention and understanding might think, you know, it sounds like the old argument, you know, I don't have a dog, but if I did have a dog, it didn't bite you. It seems to me you need to make one argument or the other, not both. If you think Ross Harris killed his son on purpose in one of the most horrific ways imaginable, then you're probably comfortable with his life without parole sentence. But what if you think Cooper's death was really just a horrible accident? Defense attorney Ashley Merchant has some salient thoughts on that score. The prosecutors go into this thinking that, that they're correct. You know, they put a lot of thought into it. And I don't know because I'm not a prosecutor. I don't know how they arrive at the conclusion that they're convinced that he did it um, and that he did it with malice. If what they say is true, which I'm not convinced of, then it's an appropriate sentence. You know, I mean, if he meant for his son to die in a hot car in that most horrific manner, if he actually intended for that and knew that that's how his son was going to die, then yes, yes, it's an appropriate sentence without a doubt. Um, but I, the problem for me, and I think a lot of folks, is that I'm not convinced that he intended for his son to die. And I'm certainly not convinced that he intended for his son to die in that manner. If he didn't, then we've got someone in prison who doesn't deserve to be there. And we've got someone who's going to be spending the rest of their life in prison. Um, we've got someone with no criminal history. We've got someone who's not a career criminal. So if, you know, we've got someone without that record, plus you couple that if he didn't really intend for his son to die, then this is a mistake. It's a tragedy. As far as we know, this is the only case of its kind that's ever been prosecuted in Georgia. Merchant wonders whether the precedent of Harris's conviction may lead to more such cases. Quite frankly, after this, I think any time that we see a child's death in a hot car and there's any evidence that the parent is a bad parent or a bad person, I think you're going to see a big push for these murder prosecutions. Historically, these cases have not been charged as malicious intent crimes. They've been charged as some type of reckless conduct crime, which is a much lower punishment. Um, historically, these are not malice types crimes because people don't believe that they want their child dead. Um, and so I think what we're gonna see though is we're gonna see anytime there's evidence that the person had um, you know, infidelity or a bad marriage or is abusive, things like that, and they have an accident, I think the accident coupled with that extra outside bad character evidence, we're going to see these malice murder charges. We started the season 17 episodes ago with you listening to the podcast. 
We're going to end this session with you speaking on the podcast. In the early stages of the trial, I realized that a lot of people had joined Facebook pages or groups devoted to the Harris case. I saw one in particular called Ross Harris Trial, and I asked whether I could join. I was told I could if I agreed to respect the privacy of members and not disclose what they said without their permission. I did just that. I checked in often and was impressed with both the knowledge and passion of those devoted to the page. On the day Harris was sentenced, I posted to the page for the first time. I told its more than 1,000 members that I'd love to talk with them about the case, if they were willing. One of the first people I heard back from was Tammy Bassett, who created the group. She's 52, a disabled Navy veteran who lives in New Orleans. She has two sons and one granddaughter. I asked her if she thought justice was served in this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, on a personal side, now let's go to the personal part of it. If he would have got anything less than life without parole, that would have been unjust for this child. Why did she think Harris was guilty? Because this man, I look at the whole child just like everybody else did. The key thing that stuck out with me that day, you as a parent, you walked away from your clothes. You didn't forget your Chick-fil-A cup. You didn't forget your phone. You didn't forget your, your, your computer bag. There's no way you didn't know that child was in that car. Your parent, there's no way you did not know. It's only between Ross and God as to what he told that baby, if he told that baby anything before he walked out that means got out that car and closed that door to walk away. Had he went back when he went back at lunch and said, and, you know, did what he did, oh, I found my child, I would have, as a parent, been more to believe it was an accident at that time than him going back for whatever reason he went back for. I think he went back, and the consensus is, is there. I mean, in, in all the groups that I followed, and, you know, checking besides the one that I had, everyone is pinpoint at that lunchtime walking away. Melanie Brinson is a 32-year-old teacher who lives on the North Carolina coast. Here's how deeply committed Brinson was to the Harris case. She drove eight hours from her home to Marietta to attend the sentencing. She thought the death was an accident when she first heard about the case. Later, when she started hearing it was a planned, malicious murder, she became more intrigued by it. So she followed the trial on the internet. Then when I watched the trial and I saw very few people showing up to support Cooper, like there was not a lot of people there in attendance in Brunswick, it just, it kind of tugged at my heart a little bit that, you know, since the Senate thing is announced so far in advance, I could arrange it in my schedule to go down there and show some support for Cooper. She was absolutely convinced that Harris meant to kill his little boy. There's just so much there. You can't ex- you can excuse a couple of things, but when you're finding yourself having to excuse countless things to f- create a narrative that paints him as innocent, that's when people start to question and wonder whether or not his story was believable. Um, and I know when I went down to Atlanta, I actually drove the route And it was very clear to me that there is no way, unless you have dementia, that you would have forgot your child that quickly. As for the sentence, Brinson said, 
it wasn't tough enough. I personally think, based on the level of heinousness and evil that it takes for someone to leave a baby in a car intentionally and walk away, especially a baby who loved him, um, trusted him, and they clearly had a, a relationship. So, I mean, the level of depravity it took for him to walk away from that car and not and to leave him there, and then to come back at lunch knowing he's suffering in there and to walk away again. I think that if any case deserves the death penalty, it would have been this one. Not everyone feels the way Bassett and Brinson do. Kelly Lang is a dog rescue and shelter volunteer who lives in Kansas City. She specializes in pit bulls and mutts because, she says, she loves the underdog. In the beginning, she was no fan of Ross Harris. Honestly, when the initial media reports came out back in 2014 when it happened, um, I thought he was guilty of sin. I mean, how could you not? The way everything was being reported and the things that were said in that hearing by Stoddard and, you know, how could you not think he was guilty of sin if he's really researching the things they were claiming? So many things were said that weren't true. And I used to think that people couldn't you know, if someone left their kid, how could you forget your child in a car? That's impossible. Then she read up on the whole issue of people leaving kids in cars. What she learned changed her point of view. I changed my mind. And I really think with Ross Harris, um, well, I think he is completely guilty of the charges against minors. And, you know, the, uh, but because he's a scumbag, that doesn't mean he's a murderer. And I personally could not have found him guilty of malice murder or felony murder based on the circumstantial evidence that was presented at trial. I could never take a man's entire life away based on what they showed me. They didn't prove it to me, but they obviously proved it to the jury. It makes me very sad. It makes me think about what I search on my phone and my iPad, you know, my internet searches. And, you know, I think anyone can be made into a criminal based on what they search on the internet if someone wants to. You know, this case scares me just because... I mean, I just, I don't feel that it was proven he was guilty of doing this with intent. And it makes me think that if if he truly didn't, this could happen to anyone. That brings us to Blair Glass, who lives in the Atlanta suburb of Decatur. She has a son who was the same age as Cooper Harris when Cooper died. She also has two daughters. Glass was familiar with the phenomenon of children being left in cars. She'd even heard the term forgotten baby syndrome. Like Lang, however, she felt misled by the early developments in the case. Because so much of the information that had colored my views of the case was related to stuff that had come out at the pretrial hearing that turned out to not be substantiated. My view definitely changed. I feel like I went into it feeling like he... Um, was guilty, and in the end, I felt like the evidence was at best inconclusive. Unlike the jury, Glass never thought the prosecution made its case. The case that the prosecution made that he was trying to lead a child-free life was never fully substantiated. So that's, that's why I leaned towards it being, you know, basically a fatal distraction. I didn't feel like there was enough evidence that firmly suggested that he intended to kill his child. Glass then did a nice job of articulating something that I've often wondered about myself. One thing that was really interesting to me about being part of the Facebook groups is it just seemed like so many people had made their minds up ahead of time. I know there are people who followed the child very closely and saw the same things that I saw and came to completely different conclusions. 
that was really interesting that we could hear the same facts and view everything so completely differently. Throughout this podcast, we've received a lot of great insight from experienced attorneys and other experts. And we're grateful to all those wonderful people for helping us make sense of this long, heartbreaking, and baffling case. But we've also benefited from the wisdom of people like the four women you just heard from, people who followed the case closely and seemed to know as much about it as anyone. To them, and to you, thanks for all the messages, comments, and ideas. I valued every one of them. Anything else for the state? No, Your Honor. Anything else for the defense? You can take the defendant into custody. And just wait a second, let's get him out. If there is no other business by the state or the defense for the court, there being none, we stand in recess. And so do we. This time, I mean it. Until next time, thanks so very much for listening. Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cabot, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.